Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about Dostoevsky um, and uh, the brothers Karamazov to start. Um, so um, Dostoevsky wrote a lot of books that focused on the problem of evil. Um, Crime and Punishment, Underground Man, Demons, Brothers Karamazov, among others. Um, now, just a brief definition of the problem of evil. What is the problem of evil? Um, this is the particularly Christian form of the problem of evil. Essentially, all religious traditions, including atheism, have a theory about evil. Um, but it's summarized in this quote from the 5th century Roman philosopher Boethius, who wrote on the consolation of philosophy. And I'll read it in English. Um, if God exists, whence evil? If not, whence good? Now, to fill it out slightly, if God exists and is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Now, one of the reasons this problem is so thorny is that it's a trilemma. Instead of two branches, there are three. And it's a bit like playing whack-a-mole. You hit one and another part pops up. So if you attack goodness, if you attack power, if you attack the existence of God, you get other problems popping up. And so this is a form of the question um, from Lucretius on the nature of things. He was quoting or paraphrasing Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, and this was handed down in Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. Um, he quotes this form from uh, Lucretius, and I won't read it, but it says basically um, what the problem is. If he's all good, he wants to stop evil. If he's all powerful, he can. So why is it that there's evil in the world? Now, we sometimes take these terms as being um, self-evident, but they're really not. And we need to define them a little bit, um, I think. So the terms God, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence. This slide <clears throat> shows a depiction of a scene from Homer, uh, which is the blinding of Polyphemus, who is a cyclops. Now, unfortunately for Odysseus, Polyphemus was the son of the sea god Poseidon. Um, and that's why Odysseus had so much trouble getting home. He was in hot water, so to speak, with Poseidon. But Poseidon was only one of many gods, and he could only, um, um, he could only uh, uh, make Odysseus' journey difficult but not stop it in the end. Now, this is 
different from the one God of Christianity and the other Abrahamic religions. So when we speak of the problem of evil, um, it is the particular form of the problem for um, monotheists, uh, such as Christians. Now, <clears throat> as for omnipotence, this term um, includes some other traits that we associate with the Christian God, with the God of the Abrahamic religions, such as omniscience. Also, this fancy term, aseity, which is the self-existence of God, that he didn't, didn't need to be created. He is ontologically independent, not ontologically dependent like all the rest of us. And he's also eternal and immutable. Now, omnibenevolence um, is maybe a little trickier than the, those other two terms. It implies something we call and speak commonly of as the good. I'll have more to say about this later, but for now, I just want to note the relationship between the good and Aristotle's four causes. And as I think you probably know, Aristotle defined four ways of talking about the cause, uh, but uh, the good is related to the final cause, what he called the final cause, or telos, and this means basically what a thing is for, the reason for something. So, to give a simple example, the final cause of a clock is to tell time. If it just sits there and look, looks pretty without telling time, it's not really a clock. So, there is a reason for something. But, of course, that um, takes us into ethical questions when we start talking about the good. And here is a quote from Connor Cunningham's book, Darwin's Pious Idea. And <clears throat> I think one of the challenges for biology in the future might be whether it can reach beyond itself. If one reduces everything to biology, is it still possible to make value judgments? Um, this, is, uh, this quote um, asked this question, why is it okay to mow the lawn but not the neighbor's dog? Why is it okay to eat a chicken or perhaps a carrot but not the neighbor's five children, even though there are a lot of them and they're rather noisy. Okay, <clears throat> let's return to, um, to the brothers Karamazov and Dostoevsky. There are a lot of threes in the book. The three brothers, there may be a fourth one, I don't want to give a spoiler, but there are three brothers for sure in the book. And Dostoevsky was very worried about the status of the modern Russian family. This is 1860 we're talking about. And he wrote about what he called the accidental family. And the Karamazovs are an example of that. He also had other threes, such as the three temptations that the Grand Inquisitor lays before Christ. Um, and this corresponds, these threes correspond to Dostoevsky's view of the human being. You probably all know that Thomas Aquinas talked about the body and the soul. The soul is the form of the living body. But in Dostoevsky, similar to Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, there's three parts to the human being. The body, the mind or intellect, and the heart. So that's uh, the three brothers correspond to some extent to that division as well. Now, the patriarch of the Karamazov family was a horrible man. Um, and he had two wives who were both dead. 
not at the same time. Um, two wives um, who were both dead at the start of the novel's actions. The three brothers have never actually lived all three together um, until the start of the novel as adults. The first wife, and I'm not going to read the whole quote, but the first wife is the mother of Dimitri, the oldest of the three brothers. And she's described as a wild and unfaithful woman who used to beat her husband. Um, the two younger children, Ivan and Alexei, and Alexei usually goes by the diminutive Alyosha. Um, this woman was a meek, in fact, terrified second wife who had basically some kind of mental illness that made her shriek uncontrollably in a kind of religious terror. Now, there is a type in a lot of Russian literature, and especially Dostoevsky, called the Urodovi. And <clears throat> this, is, this means the holy fool. Um, the second wife of, uh, of the patriarch, um, Sonia Ivanovna, um, is one of the holy fools in the novel. And Alyosha may be another. And there are a few others as well, Father Farrakhan and Stinking Lizabetta, for those of you who have read the book. Now, what I'm going to focus in on is the debate between the two younger brothers, Ivan and Alyosha. And mainly, this is about the problem of evil. Um, and those of you who got a chance to look at the handout, um, those three chapters are what I'm going to talk about. So, Ivan, as this quote says, was a gloomy and withdrawn child. But he was also intellectually brilliant. So he went to university to study natural science. He was also very likely an atheist and a revolutionary, though this can be debated. Now, Alyosha, in contrast, was loved by everybody. And uh, he was also a bit of a dreamer. He was spiritual, and at the start of the novel, he had entered a Russian monastery where he was learning from the elder at the mon monastery named Father Zosima. Now, <clears throat> the debate uh, between Ivan and Alyosha is really more of a tirade from Ivan at Alyosha. And um, he starts here with what a scholar of Russian literature named Victor Teres called the devil's swindle. So he says, if God exists, and if indeed, he, if indeed, if he indeed created the earth, then as we know perfectly well, he created it in accordance with Euclidean geometry. And he created human reason with a conception of only three dimensions. Now, um, the swindle is that he is denying God's reality solely because he, a human being, cannot comprehend it. Um, I don't know if it's a swindle, the devil uses it as such, according to Terrace, but it is certainly fallacious logic. There are a lot of things, after all, that we don't understand. That doesn't make them unreal. Uh, the relevant case in point here is that at the time of the novel takes place in the mid-19th century, what was happening in Russia was that non-Euclidean geometry was being developed. And this um, um, pursuit basically took aim at the sixth axiom of Euclid, which is that parallel lines never meet. After all, axioms by definition are not proven. 
so you can change them. And this is what these mathematicians did. They allowed parallel lines to, to meet. My point, of course, is not the math. Um, it's about Ivan. Um, his assumption simply is not valid. <clears throat> now, um, Ivan is a um, great rhetorician, and his rhetoric is so powerful that many readers have doubted whether Dostoevsky was ever able to rebut him. And I can tell you that the chapter Rebellion, which is the first of the three I put in the uh, handout, was my very first introduction uh, to the problem of evil. This was sometime before the Civil War when I was in college. Um, it was excerpted. That was a joke, by the way. Um, it was excerpted, and it led off a book by Nelson Pike called God and Evil. And we used it for one week in Philosophy 101. And let me just say that it made quite an impression on me. I was certain at the time shows you how dumb I was, that uh, Dostoevsky had made a great argument for atheism. Well, he did make a great argument for atheism in the mouth of Iran, of Ivan. Now, <clears throat> his argument next moves into a rhetorical device called a synchoresis. And a synchoresis is a mild concession that you make before the tirade, before the onslaught. And <clears throat> the concession here is to declare himself incapable of uh, resolving questions about God because he has, alas, only a poor three-dimensional mind, uh, the kind of mind that shouldn't think about things like God. So he concludes his mild concession uh, by saying, I accept, it's here, um, I accept God not only willingly, but moreover, I also accept his wisdom and purpose, which are completely unknown to us. Now, you can also argue with that last part, but I think the main problem is that he does nothing of the kind. Um, this is not at all where he lets the matter rest. Um, in this quote, he claims um, that it's not God he doesn't accept, it's the world created by God. Now, this is quite another thing from saying, for example, that we ought to use our intellects to make the world a better place. That's not what he says here. The problem here is that Ivan does not accept the basic goodness of the world, uh, nor does he accept the basic goodness of the human species. So to use a term from Thomas Aquinas, he is guilty of morose delectation the excessive dwelling on impure thoughts on all the bad stuff. Now, um, his obstinacy on this point is proven by the fact in this quote that he will not accept, um, even if he, uh, even, um, he will not accept these points, even if, as he puts it, parallel lines meet before my own eyes. Why not accept it? Well, it's just obstinacy. Now, a lot of the power of Ivan's tirade rests in the fact that he's talking about the suffering of children. And one has to be pretty hard-hearted not to be moved by it. But contrary to what he says, it's not harder to limit yourself to children. It's actually easier. Um, so in this quote, he says, 
I will not speak of grown-ups because apart from the fact that they are disgusting and do not deserve love, they also have retribution. They ate the apple and knew good and evil and became as gods, and they still go on eating. But little children have not eaten anything and are not yet guilty of anything. Now, I point out here first that in the Eastern churches, there is a less <clears throat> categorical view of original sin than in the Western churches. In the Eastern churches, one becomes tainted by original sin only as one matures and enters the world. So when Ivan speaks of children not yet guilty of anything, he's actually citing pretty orthodox, Eastern orthodoxy. Um, the problem, again, with this statement, however, is that he rejects human goodness altogether. He says that adults are, quote, disgusting and do not deserve love. And in this quote, having retribution means that they will be judged sooner or later, presumably meaning by God. Now, this slide speaks to the incident that Ivan related, very powerful, disturbing incident in which a sadistic general sicked his dogs on a poor child right in front of the mother. And here is uh, the point at which Alyosha uses the word rebellion. Okay, now <clears throat> Ivan's rhetoric has moved Alyosha so much, this is where he says rebellion, and Ivan's um, um, <clears throat> rhetoric has used has uh, moved Alyosha so much that he basically tricks Alyosha into making a concession that he uh, immediately regrets. Ivan asks Alyosha, "Would you agree to be the architect of a world founding on the suffering of that one child?" And under the weight of emotions, Alyosha concedes. No, I would not agree. And um, that is pretty much where the argument ends until they start talking about, uh, here's Alyosha saying, no, I would not agree. So here again is the problem of evil recap. And <clears throat> the question for us now is, how does Dostoevsky answer Ivan's tirade? Or... Does he even do so? Now, my answer to that question is that Dostoevsky never answers Ivan in kind um, with another rhetorical onslaught, say, from Father Zosima or Alyosha. Um, I think he does answer Ivan in a way, though, and that is through the characters and their actions, in particular, Alyosha and Father Zosima. Um, something now, um, one of the underlying questions here is in this slide, and this is something that Dostoevsky did in this novel and does in quite a few other of his novels, and that is he first poses important questions in the mouth of a, of a buffoon character. And here, <clears throat> the particular buffoon is a silly and foppish woman named Madame Khokhokhov. And the name is funny in Russian as well as English. Um, uh, the giveaway <clears throat> is that she's Madame, and that's a damning thing. It makes her a member of the aristocracy, and furthermore, 
a Europeanifier, not a Slavophile, um, which is what Dostoevsky was, Slavophile. So anyway, here, Madame Chaklikov is talking to Father Zosima about her lack of faith and the worry <clears throat> that when she dies, there will be nothing but, as she puts it, burdock on her grave, no afterlife, in other words. Now, the writer she refers to where she read this phrase <clears throat> is actually Turgenev, who wrote Fathers and Sons. And the novel, uh, this is the novel that popularized the term nihilist. Now, in fact, Father Zosima is no rhetor. In fact, he's a little bit inarticulate, like Alyosha. Um, but um, Dostoevsky, therefore, was setting himself an enormous task in having, in having Zosima and Alyosha answer Ivan through their actions. And that was intentional. Now, Father Zosima's message, to the extent that it can be stated simply, um, has been carried through by the end of the novel. And this is the, mes the message, the essence of the message is what Zosima calls active love. So he says, um, when Madame Chaklikov says, well, how do I know that God exists? How do I know these things? And he says, by the experience of active love, try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more will you will be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. In other words, if you want these things, you have to give things away. That's the only way to do it, he says. Active love. Actively love your neighbors. Tirelessly love your neighbors. Um, okay. I'm going to leave Dostoevsky for a little while, come back to him later. And... Um, Here's again the problem of evil, and I want to run through very quickly some of the ways that people have addressed this trilemma. Um, the first way, of course, is to deny God's existence. So this is what um, a playwright, German playwright, Georg Buchner, um, wrote a play called Danton's Death, and he there, he, in that play, he referred to suffering as the rock of atheism. It's the rock upon which atheism is built. Um, now, Ivan might be an atheist, but the character in Samuel Beckett's play Endgame, Ham, definitely is one. And he says this line, the bastard, um, he doesn't exist. Of course, the irony here is what are you getting angry about if there is no God? Um, who are you getting angry at? Adams, exactly. Um, who are you getting angry at? Um, okay. <clears throat> now, in fact, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas <clears throat> were much less worried about atheism than something else called that they called either Manichaeism or Gnostic dualism. And Manichaeism, the name, comes from the Persian philosopher Mani. Um, who, uh, whose central idea was that um, the, there was a primeval conflict in the universe between light and darkness, between good and evil, as equally powerful deities or forces. Um, the Manichaeans usually associated evil with the body and uh, the, uh, the earthly world. Um, salvation 
they said, was only possible through them and their special knowledge. And that's one of the reasons that Augustine was a lector for the Manichaeans, a reader for the Manichaeans, but he left them because they never answered his question. These answers never made any sense to Augustine, um, and he left them in disgust at what he considered their snobbism. Now, in case you think Manichaeism is just some obscure um, third or fifth century religion originating in Persia, let me assure you that Manichaeism as a habit of thought is still very much with us. <clears throat> um, I want to dwell slightly on this point. Think, for example, of the light and dark sides of the force in the Star Wars movies, and you'll have some idea of what Augustine and Thomas um, meant when they worked to refute the Manichaeans. Manichaeans. This is part of <coughs> Ivan's problem as well. Now, the reason we fall into Manichaeism as a pattern of thought is that evil is sometimes so overwhelming that one quite naturally thinks about it as if it were a force. Okay, um, it's uh, almost impossible not to, to do that. And I think many of you know that that's exactly the position that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas argued against, that evil is a substance or a force or anything like that. Okay, so, oops, one word. So one can attack um, the omnipotence of God, because as soon as you say that good and evil are more or less equal, or there are many gods, you're denying God's omnipotence. You can also attack, as many of the 18th century philosophers like Hume and Voltaire, you can also attack the, the goodness or all goodness of God, what is sometimes called God's morality. And I'm not going to go talk about this because in the interest of time. And I mentioned Lucretius <clears throat> before, so just to finish that thought, um, Lucretius and Epicurus um, sought what they called ataraxia, and ataraxia is a state of um, serene calmness, equanimity, imperturbability, or tranquility, even in the face of troubles. But I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit, a little bit more length about this one, which is nihilism, and introduce two related terms: <coughs> scientism and uh, biologism. Now, the term nihilism, as I mentioned, was first popularized by Turgenev's novel *Fathers and Sons*. There's a character in there named Bazarov who calls himself a nihilist. But as the novel turns out, he's not really a nihilist. But in any case, this term became very popular. Dostoevsky rebutted nihilism and allied it with scientism. <coughs> and in particular, um, his target was Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who wrote a novel, which I do not recommend because it's really bad, um, <laughs> but it is called What is to be Done? And he refuted this or rebutted it in a number of places, including Underground Man and Demons. Now, the philosopher who is probably most uh, known for the concept of nihilism, although he didn't originate it, is Nietzsche. 
And this is a quote from Nietzsche. He said, what I am now going to relate is the history of the next, of the next two centuries. I shall describe what will happen, what must necessarily happen, the triumph of nihilism. Now, um, I think it's important, though it's only fair to point out two things. First, this is a posthumous book by Nietzsche. It's The Will to Power, is published by his sister after he died. And secondly, he is making a prediction, not necessarily um, in favor of it. However, he does frequently inveigh against both Judaism and Christianity as what he called slave morality, claiming that they had substituted weakness for strength as the criterion of goodness. But the problem um, for nihilism is similar to the problem for atheism. Where does the good come from? What do you substitute for the good if you deny the existence of good and evil? Now, it can be very hard to know exactly what Nietzsche was saying, but at times he denied that good and evil were valid categories at all. Um, and um, and I'll, um, we'll come back to nihilism in a little while. He also spoke sometimes of transvaluation of all values in the Antichrist and the will to power. Problem is, he never said what he meant by that, um, and who knows if he knew. Okay, so the last approach I want to uh, discuss about the problem of evil is the approach of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. And um, in effect, um, it, it all revolves around the troublesome little word is, state of being verbs. Um, Augustine um, is... Um, um, Augustine, much too briefly here, Augustine's great insight was that evil can occur neither in the supreme good, because it's not corruptible, nor in the absence of all good, because if there's no good, there's nothing to corrupt. So evil can occur only in the uh, middle ground in which we all live of the good, but not the supreme good. And it exists only as the loss of goodness. It doesn't have its own essence or substance. It is only the loss of goodness in a subject. And he comes with, uh, with this uh, conclusion, so long, therefore, as they are, they are good things. Therefore, whatever is, is good. That evil, then, which I sought whence it was, is not any substance. For if it were a substance, it would be good. And this is what is known as the privative uh, view of evil, um, which is that evil is the privation, not simple negation, but the loss, the privation of the good in the subject. So again, the problem is this troublesome word is. What is the meaning of the word is? And this is something that Thomas Aquinas discussed at length, including starting with his very first book, um, on being an essence. And the problem is that this little word is, is really two words. First, it is a grammatical copulative. It links a thing and a quality, or two things. Now, uh, for example, if I say the sky is blue, 
I do not mean that the sky is the color blue itself. No, I mean that the sky has the quality of being blue. Now, that's one use of the word is, but the other is <clears throat> that the um, that it can be the essence of a being or a thing, what the thing is. Thomas Aquinas uh, used the term ends per se, being per se. Um, for example, if we say that God is love, we mean that quite literally. All right? Now, there's a further difficulty here, and that has to do with the epistemology of Thomas Aquinas. We can say as a generalization that we do not know, we cannot know essences. What we know comes from sensory data, and it's all what he called accidents, things that might be there or might not be there. For example, <clears throat> um, if I ask you, what is a dog? You might say, well, it's a furry animal with a wet nose, uh, four legs, and a wagging tail. But now I show you a dog that um, has had its fur shaved, has lost its leg in an accident, and has a cold so its nose is dry, so it's not wagging its tail. But yet you know it's a dog, all right? Why? Why do we say this is still a dog? Because we posit that there is this doggy essence in the dog. It has essence of dog, if you will. So all those other traits, like wagging tail and wet nose, Thomas referred to those as accidents. And he got that from Aristotle, to be fair about it. Um, now, um, we don't have time to go into this, but Thomas said um, that not knowing essences is true in general, but it's true above all about God. We can know two things about God, that he exists and what he is not. He is not the things we encounter, which are changeable, finite, and so forth. God is infinite, immutable, and so forth, and we can't know those things. We don't really have time to go into that because I want to move on to this, which is the brave new world of Aldous Huxley and how it relates to Dostoevsky. And here's where I'm going to talk more about scientism and biologism. Scientism is not just a belief in the methods of, and findings of science, um, but it's an epistemological position that says that science is the only source of truth. Biologism says that about biology, that um, biology not only describes life um, accurately, but it describes it completely. It's a complete worldview about life. Now, one has to use these um, awkward terms, scientismist and biologismist, because a biologist, after all, is just someone who studies biology. I'm talking about someone now who believes in biologism as an epistemological position. Okay, the corollaries of biologism and the relationship to nihilism. <clears throat> the basic premise here, a belief, is that life has no meaning beyond itself. Um, second, teleology is not invited. It's a four-letter word, even though it has nine letters. Third, good and evil are really only words we use for other things, like 
functional or non-functional, adaptive or maladaptive, selective advantage or disadvantage. In other words, there is only adaptability, survival, propagation of the species, or its DNA. But wait a second, isn't that teleological? Doesn't that posit that life has an end to propagate itself? And it also, biologism is a kind of utilitarianism. But wait a second, isn't it a little bit circular? How are we defining the good here? Utilitarianism is the greatest good for the greatest number. How are we defining the good? Now, <clears throat> um, this is uh, for the two people. I, I, I know you've seen this because I hear some laughing. Um, um, this, this is an iconic um, moment from the movie The Big Lebowski. And I show it to illustrate a point about nihilism. Uh, for the one or two people in the universe who haven't seen it, um, the central character is called The Dude. And he is um, harassed by a techno music group called The Nihilists because they're nihilists. Okay, they claim to be. They say, we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Uh, now, in this scene, they're crying about the fact that they've been treated unfairly. Um, now, my point here is that if you espouse the doctrine of nihilism, you also have given up the right to complain about fairness or unfairness. We, now, and I ask, are we really sure we want to give up on concepts like justice? The question to ask any nihilist or purported nihilist or purported proponent of scientism or biologism is the second question that Boethius asked. Um, if there is no God, whence the good? Where does it come from? How do we define it? Well, basically, I have concluded that it would not exist any more than God would. Okay, let's come to Huxley's novel, and I want to speak mostly about one character, which is Mustafa Mond, who is the world controller over all of Europe in the novel. Um, and uh, he was, Huxley modeled him explicitly and clearly after the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. A few years ago, I googled um, images for Brave New World, and uh, what, I, what I got, interestingly enough, was a lot of images about human cloning, complete with um, explicit embryos. Now, the novel was published in 1932. So, of course, there was no such thing as cloning, except, you know, that's how, uh, when a strawberry plant puts out a runner, that's basically a clone. Um, but aside from that, there, were no, there was no cloning. So Huxley invented a fictional process by which human beings would be made in the laboratory. And the point was that it was an utterly cold laboratory process, and the results were intended to be fairly uniform products. But because of random chance, in fact, there were gradations in how the project turned out. And this gave rise to the castes, really, not just classes, but castes in the society, alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, and epsilons. Now, this inequality then required state propaganda machinery in order to keep everyone satisfied with his or her position in the hierarchy. 
So the aim was to make everybody uniform, but the reality was even stricter hierarchy than they had previously. Now, I think you probably know who this sheep is, or was. Uh, many years later, 1996, Dolly the sheep was born. Um, she was a clone through the process called somatic cell nucleus transfer, nuclear transfer. And I show this to remind us about the fact that it did not work on the first try, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. It worked on the 277th try. So there's a lot of randomness that goes into this, a lot of tries. A few years later, this is 2017, this headline appeared. And um, as a sometime or amateur theologian, I had to chuckle at their use of the word created uh, because some theologians, Thomas Aquinas uh, in particular, would use the word made here, not created. He reserved the word created for what God did. Okay, coming back to Huxley's novel, the title, Brave New World, is a very ironic quotation from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. In the play, Miranda, the character Miranda, is awed by what she sees. In the Huxley novel, this line is say, said by a character named John, usually referred to as a savage. Now, John was born the old-fashioned way, and therefore his mother was exiled to America. And now in the novel, he's coming back to Europe. He doesn't like what he sees at all. And the novel, of course, is dystopian, not utopian. But I'll remind you what the word utopia comes from. This is from a novel um, by um, a work, a book by uh, Thomas More, 1516. And the word comes basically from the Greek for there ain't no such place. Okay, so there are definite problems <clears throat> with technology. There are problems with technology. However, I would strongly urge you against any simple yes-no approaches to it. And here's the dilemma. The dilemma is we want the technology. We need the technology. Um, and we need it to do good things like cure disease and address many other ills. The anthem from Francis Bacon is, um, is this one. Conquer nature, relieve man's estate, relieve suffering. This is something we all want to do and should do. Um, and yet, it gets rather scary at times. And I quote this article by Leon Cass that appeared um, about 20 years ago, and it still holds. He says, human nature itself lies on the operating table, ready for alteration, for eugenic and psychic quote, enhancement for wholesale redesign. For anyone who cares about preserving our humanity, the time has come to pay attention. I would say the time has long since passed. Um, the issue is this. You know, we can clone genes very well now. Um, and if human beings could be altered without limits, and technically that's not necessarily unfeasible, um, would there then be such a thing as human nature anymore? Is human nature an obsolete term? <clears throat> now, the Brave New World is based on um, the re 
deployment of human resources through technology. Um, the world state was set up after the horrific nine-year war. And the model for it was Henry Ford's um, assembly line. Now, um, to a large extent, the brave new world succeeds. There's no more disease, no more aggression, overtly, no more war, no anxiety. That's not quite true. Suffering, envy, and grief. And how is this achieved? It's achieved by genetic manipulation, by psychoactive drugs, Soma is the name of it, and high-tech amusements, keeping people amused. It's basically bread and circuses. So <clears throat> the point here is that all these ills have been eliminated, and yet this is a dystopia, not a utopia. Things have gone terribly, terribly wrong. And what's gone wrong is the lives of the souls that live there. There's shallowness, homogenization, debasement, uncommitted, unhappy lives, the death of the soul. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so let's come back to the comparison of Mustafa Mond of The Brave New World and Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor is a very complicated chapter, as those of you who have read it will surely know, and I'll be happy to discuss it more later. Um, but I'm afraid right now we can only scratch the surface. Um, so this is one of two things I'm going to give you a promissory note about, the other being the transcendentals. Now, the premise of the chapter in Dostoevsky's novel is that Christ comes back to Earth in particular in Sevilla, in Spain, in the midst of the Inquisition. He performs some more miracles there, and he meets and talks with the Grand Inquisitor. Or rather, Christ listens while the Inquisitor talks. And here is a quote that I think captures a lot of um, the message of the Grand Inquisitor. With us, everyone will be happy, and they will no longer rebel or destroy each other as in your freedom everywhere. Oh, we shall convince them that they will become only become free when they resign their freedom to us and submit to us. So um, this is give up your freedom and everything will be just great. Human beings, he argues, are such poor, weak, stupid creatures that if they're free to do so, they will destroy themselves. And therefore, it will be better for them to cede their freedom to him, the Grand Inquisitor. For this reason, he says, Christ must be stopped since faith and belief are necessarily predicated on free will. And therefore, freedom must be eliminated. Okay, so now um, I am going to talk, albeit briefly, about the term transcendentals. This is a, an important philosophical concept. The word refers to the universal uh, properties of all being. And I think probably many of you know that Thomas Aquinas's philosophy has a lot to do with being. The word um, um, in the world, being, is divided into transcendentals. So there's, for example, truth, good goodness, beauty, and so forth. In God, however, 
God is completely simple, according to Thomas Aquinas. So all of these traits that make up being are seamlessly united in God. But in the world, that's not the case. So we make distinctions between things like truth and beauty, even though they have something to do with one another. Okay, so I think, um, I think, um, wait a second, hang on here for just a second. Okay, so I think if you uh, think about these um, last three, you can see um, um, they're, they're the, they're the uh, most straightforward to, um, to understand. Thomas Aquinas identified five transcendentals, but some people also believe that this sixth one, beauty, uh, that Thomas also considered um, beauty to be a transcendental. Now, I'm going to flash up this slide with way too much text on it. If anyone wants to talk more about the transcendentals later, um, I'll be happy to do so. But we're going to go on, and I think we're going to get to the heart of the matter, which is that Mustafa Mond and his brave new world is an attack on the transcendentals. Um, and ultimately, that is an attack on God. Basically, Mond argues that we, first of all, let's take them one by one, beauty. Um, John the Savage, as it turns out, grew up with only one book, the works of Shakespeare. That's why he's always quoting Shakespeare, and he quotes this passage about the brave new world. Now, um, but Mohn says that Shakespeare, all art, all beauty is obsolete, even obscene. And what he really means by that is subversive. Truth. This is a kind of a surprising one, the attack on truth, even scientific truth. Because much as the world state relies on technology, we need to make a distinction here. Science is about knowledge. Technology is about doing, praxis. Okay, so in other words, of course, science and technology have a lot to do with one another. But in another way, science and religion have something in common because they're both about seeking truth. They're concerned with truth rather than doing. Now, that's an overstatement, of course. Um, but Mustafa Mohn finds um, truth, even science as well as religion, to be subversive. And so he says every discovery in pure science is potentially subversive. Science must be, sometimes be treated as a possible enemy. Yes, even science. And like the Grand Inquisitor, who was once a good guy and turned into a bad guy, was once a spiritual seeker, no longer is, Mond was once a scientist. Okay. Um, the good, um, no need for... The good is uh, Huxley focused mainly on sexual morality, but um, which has been banned in the brave new world, the morality that is. But the ban on the good is far more general than that. Now, coming to the somewhat obscure, more obscure transcendentals, first there's this term aliquid, and that's Latin for something. But what it's really about is relationality. When you identify a thing as something, you are saying 
that um, it is not you, it is other than you. Or you are identifying two things that are other than you and looking at their relationship. So aliquid is about relationality. In the brave new world, all familial relationships have been abolished. And in general, there are only the most superficial relationships among human beings. And this is, of course, a source of great dissatisfaction among the characters. Unum means one. There is no individuality in the brave new world. And finally, res means thing. And that, is, and that term refers to that a thing is a thing by virtue of having the essence of that thing. So coming back to my favorite example of the dog, it has a doggy essence. Now, in the novel, Mustafa Mond attacks this point by denying that there is a god, or if there is one, it just doesn't matter. We go ahead and live our lives as we would anyway. Okay, this is more or less where I'm going to leave you. Um, um, I have those of you who happen to be into David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest um, may recognize this particular meteorological phenomenon. It's called a Brockengespenst. Um, and the Brocken, or it's, it's translated as the Brocken Specter or Mountain Specter. Brocken is the highest peak in the Hartz Mountains in Germany. And the Brocken Gespenst is the magnified, enormous uh, shadow cast uh, of an observer cast on the clouds opposite of the uh, sun's direction. Now, um, the figurehead is often surrounded, as in this case, by a halo, which is sometimes referred to as a glory. And this phenomenon occurs when uniformly sized water droplets in clouds or mist refract and backscatter light. Actually, the physics of it have been worked out in a lot of detail. Now, Wallace used the Brocken Gespenst. Um, um, that might now be the most famous use of this phenomenon, but a lot of other authors have used it, um, particular Goethe in Faust and Thomas Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow. Now, in Infinite Jest by Wallace, David Foster Wallace, two of the characters named Marat and Steeply converse throughout the novel on a mountain outcropping outside of Tucson, Arizona. They function a little bit like a chorus in a Greek drama, commenting on what they see. Now, my interpretation of the symbol in Wallace's novel, I don't really have time to justify it, but um, written about it, so you can read it about it in my forthcoming book. Um, shameless plug. Um, 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 so um, that this is, they rep this represents the human being as imago Dei, made in the image of God, um, so that they are magnified enormously beyond their physical size. Now this is the opposite of what I uh, said to you about Yvonne, who seems to despise and minimize human beings. I want to add, however, that the character of Yvonne turns out to be much more complicated than I've presented it here tonight. Close with these two quotes. I said that Father, Father Zosima gave a retort um, not in kind to Yvonne's tirade. 
and that his only retort was not only to preach, but to live a life of active love. And I argue that this, um, this is also a response that can be made to Mustafa Mond in the brave new world. Technological endeavor is not to be discarded, yet it must be practiced with love or it will destroy us. I'll close with these two quotes. The first is from Wallace's novel, uh, Marat. One of these two characters says to the other steeply, choose with care. You are what you love. No, he's French Canadian. He has a thick accent. You are completely and only what you would die for without, as you say, the thinking twice. You, Monsieur Hugh Steeply, you would die without thinking for what? Now, this is a very Augustinian position. And here it is out of Augustine. Um, Once for all, then, a short precept is given thee, love and do what thou wilt. Whether thou hold thy peace, through love hold thy peace. Whether thou cry out, through love cry out. Whether thou correct, through love correct. Whether thou spare, through love do thou spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.